0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me as always is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. So we are past season two. We are. We did it. We're in this little in-between, another flex
1: course. Where well, we just meander about things, I think.
0: Yeah, uh, we're, we're just going to talk about some some random topics. We're going to have a couple of guests on, some things that we maybe wanted to talk about in the last episode. Or the last couple of episodes, last season, uh, but never really got to.
1: Mm-hmm. We're probably going to swerve way out of our lane as
0: usual. Uh, yeah, and in and, and order to really start swerving way out of our lane, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to talk a little bit about psychology uh, as a science. Um, but but delve a little deeper into some, I don't know, how do we put this?
1: Threats on the horizon for, yeah. for psychology, controversies. I mean, if climate change isn't going to wipe us out, one of these threats might, so... Yeah. But ultimately, I think we can we can agree. What we're going to end on is, is kind of this idea of um,
0: post-disciplinary psychology, and, and we could probably agree that's probably a good thing for the field, at least, or at least a good thing for our careers. Yes. Uh, so. <laughs>
1: Definitely for us. Um, but yeah, no, I, d- I think we wanted to kind of do this episode, because we didn't really ever define psychology for the Intro to Psych podcast, like... Whatsoever. We just jumped right into Thorndike. Yeah. Um, so maybe this is kind of our reflection on the last semester and kind of looking forward at what psychology is going to look like, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now.
0: Yeah, we, we talk about a lot of different topics and subfields of psychology. And one of the things that unifies all of that, so whether you're a personality psychologist or social psychologist or a neuroscientist, Uh, Regardless of what you do, you are a psychologist, Mm -hmm. um, or at least you follow the tenets of psychology, which since Freud has been trying to define itself as a science, (laughs) much to the chagrin of biology and physics and chemistry and Mm all of those quote unquote real hard sciences, not a
1: soft sciences over here in psychology. I refer to them as the uh, natural sciences, drawing a unnatural line between humans and the rest of the world. Thank you. <laughs> but you would have biologists say that like, humans are natural. Mm-hmm. I
0: mean, we 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 are part of that natural environment, and and then where does you know Leon and environmental
1: psychology come into play? <laughs> I think we'll get to that when we go to post disciplinarity because that it's turning into a mess.
0: Yeah. So I guess we need to define well. What is psychology?
1: I guess, I mean, my textbook answer is going to be the scientific study of human behavior and emotions and cognition.
0: Human and animal
1: behavior. Oh, are we including
0: animals too? It is mostly, uh, typically included uh, included. in most intro textbooks, or at least the ones that I've come into contact with. So I, I like to throw it in there because it just further muddies the water. Yeah, because now we're bleeding into zoology. <laughs> right, right. We 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 have our our grubby little you know psychoanalytic pause and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 the study of you know even if we're looking at humans, human and animal behavior and and cognition. Right. Yeah. Thoughts and action. Um, and feelings. And feelings. Yeah, I mean everything in between. Um, and so. You know, regardless of what some of those fields might say, psychology is a science. We use a set of methods um, to attempt to observe and better understand the world around us mm-hmm. or the natural environment and to draw conclusions and understandings through those observations.
1: Yes. Well, you and, get- oh, yeah. And just specifically the scientific method of developing a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis over and over and over again until we get a theory. I tell um, a couple of my classes, there's
0: a great um, intro chapter to cognitive psychology, which we'll get into next season. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they they bring up the concept of the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. Right. And the way I describe, you know, what we do in science is is that, you know, we kind of take the thesis of empiricism, so just observation, and we take the antithesis of rationalism, Mm -hmm. of logic, you know, logically coming to a conclusion and we synthesize them into a field that logically develops hypothetical constructs, and then we test them using observation. Right. And it's
1: taking several decades. And we touched on this with behaviorism when we talked to uh, Dr. Henley, but the roots of psychology are very much based in this method and asserting that this is the kind of work that we do. So, you know, Freud had his it needs to be a science it needs to be a science and then he started talking about libidinal forces <laughs> um and then called you the crazy one yeah but really kind of moving past freud into the behaviorists who were just like only behavior matters if it can't be empirically tested it doesn't matter um psychology has really been focused on singularly focused on maintaining scientific integrity for at least a hundred years maybe longer
0: Yeah, I mean, you could look to the early behaviorists. You can look to some earlier ones. I mean, Pavlov would be an example of actually someone fighting against that. He was not a psychologist. He Mm -hmm. was a physiologist and was part of that Russian school that argued that biologists should be the ones actually doing this work, not psychologists. They don't know what they're doing. Um, I mean, much like a lot of fields that, that psychological... Subfields have broken off of, so you can even look at things like psychiatry post World War II, with the need for more clinicians. You see clinical psychology break off, and there's a lot of pushback mm-hmm. from psychiatrists, mm-hmm. uh, even more today when you have what there's five states uh, that are doing um, allowing psychologists to go through further training to to uh, prescribe oh, okay. psychopharmacological. If I'm saying that right, drugs yes um and they're still getting super amounts of pushback from psychiatrists from medical doctors Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of misinformation and stuff running around because they're kind of a threat they're these people who are trying to move into our field
1: (laughs) right exactly and you know every just you know beyond clinical and you know practice-based psychology even like when social psychology broke off like we were the Dirty redheaded stepchild for yeah. at least twenty years. Um, similar with personality, like everybody's gone through it. Cognition had its own revolution.
0: Yeah, and and it really, you know, cognitive psychology for one spurned because, or you know, kind of came out through that cognitive revolution as part of cognitive science, and so it took, you know, biological researchers and computer science that was probably one of the biggest fields Mm -hmm. at the time that was helping to spurn that the development of early theories of ai Mm -hmm. that helped to solidify cognitive psychology because they were asking a lot of the same questions
1: about computers that we were asking about people right and even you know tangential fields i don't even mean tangential But like Noam Chomsky was a linguist, for example, and he was very big into the Cognitive Revolution. You also had a lot of philosophy going on. So, you know, whenever a big, whenever things start breaking (laughs) up in psychology, stuff gets messy. Yeah. And you're typically hated because you're undermining the integrity of that scientific directive that we've been chasing since the beginning
0: we have a long history. I mean, maybe that needs to be our season four. We do a history of psychology. Mm-hmm. Because you go into the history and psychology gets its start from everything but psychology. Right. We, we start from philosophy and the big, great questions that were asked by the, you know, we would consider the great philosophers all throughout history. You have a bunch of people saying, all right, can we test this? Can we actually study this? Um, and then, you know, again, fields feels like behaviorism is, is born out of biological processes, mm-hmm. physio- uh, physiology. You know, a lot of the early psych stuff that you'll you'll see in any textbook about the eye and the ear and, and our senses. That's all early psychology, but it's also mid to early <laughs> physiology as well. Right. So, yeah. So we, we've got this sort of muddied in-between where we, we were kind of born out of a number of other fields. And then that's further muddied, I guess, for lack of a better word when we start to get into this this kind of in-between that we sit on. So mm-hmm. psychology is kind of this divide between what we would consider those natural sciences mm-hmm. and the humanities. Right. And our liberal arts. So we're, we're kind of, we're doing, you know, we've, we've got one hand in the natural science pot, another hand in the humanities, liberal arts pot. And, you know, it kind of depends on what school you go to and
1: mm-hmm. what department you're in and what their specializations are seriously i went from my undergrad was in psychology was in the school of the college of sciences
0: i believe mine too
1: and then i moved to tamu c and i was in the school of education yeah <laughs> and now i'm moving back to the school of sciences but this one is sciences and arts yeah, it's the arts and science arts and sciences so it's you know you get shifted around quite a bit and that's one of the things that really attracted me to psychology to begin with was I was very like an artsy kid growing up, and I was like into the reading and the literature and the liberal arts, but also I was interested in science, and so I just was able to merge those two different uh, skill sets and interests within psychology.
0: Yeah, and I think what we can we could probably make a pretty good argument with is that over time, psychology, at least the revolutions within psychology, have been kind of pushing and pulling us Across that center line, yeah, a little more into the arts, a little more into the natural sciences, mm-hmm. a little more into the humanities, a little a little more um and it, it's it's interesting because today I mean I, I think we're we're pretty middle line when it comes to the arguments and the revolutions being had because you have neuroscience that's this burgeoning field, and it's mm. been burgeoning for decades now.
1: They've been trying real hard for a while, but they're
0: <laughs> ripping us further hmm to, to kind of the hard sciences side um you you have other fields like evolutionary psychology cognitive psychology is still really big they're mm-hmm. kind of moving us closer and closer to that natural sciences side but on the flip side of that you have some bigger arguments happening with social psychology mm-hmm. and i mean there's still a push to make things a little more grounded and a little more empirical
1: but yeah because this tension exists even within the sub-disciplines too yeah
0: Yeah. And I mean, and it it also has to do with how those other fields view us as well. Mm -hmm. I think you do have some medical fields that are greatly embracing neuroscience and they're kind of welcoming those Mm -hmm. individuals into the fold as, as these sort of specialists and researchers. But on the other hand, it's really hit and miss. Mm-hmm. With the humanities and with the natural sciences and how they're going to feel about us and how they're going to treat us. And...
1: Right. And I think especially for like social psychology, I feel like we're torn between sociology and cognitive science real hard right now.
0: Yeah. And the cognitive sciences don't want us because we're too social and the sociologists don't want us because we're too quantitative.
1: Yeah. No. They're like, you got to, you got to commit. You're either social cog or you're with them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And yeah, and, and so one of the things, and one of the things that we wanted to talk about, to, you know, make these little intercession discussions a little spicier, mm. uh, is to get into, you know, one of these. I guess I don't want to call it a threat, but
1: it's fairly threatening to some people.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, like the, my my first um, interaction with it is, as I did a Google Scholar search. For seeing, you know how it related to psychology, specifically clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. And um, my first interaction with it was some really scathing opinion piece articles by clinical psychologists who said that it was ruining the field. Oh, that it was not something that we should be engaging in. It's the same argument that it gets in other fields when people say that this is the real
1: racism. Mm.
0: Uh, it's intersectionality.
1: Yay. <laughs> So before we get too ahead of ourselves and people start assuming what intersectionality means, definitionally, I'm going to pull from Settles et al. 2020, who made some commentary about intersectionality on psychology. And they argued that intersectionality understands that structures of inequality are interwoven, that those said structures inform subjective experiences of similarly interwoven social identities. And that theory and practice should be channeled towards social justice goals. And if we go beyond that, and I'll give you the Wikipedia definition,
0: because I think it's a little, maybe narrower? Mm -hmm. But it it basically defines itself as an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. Mm -hmm. It was conceptualized and coined by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, um, intersectionality identifies multiple factors of advantage and disadvantage. Examples of these include gender, caste, sex, race, class, sexuality, religion, disability, physical appearance, and height. hmm And they intersect, thus intersectionality, and overlap. Um, oh, the, these intersection and, intersectioning and overlapping social identities may be both empowering but also impress- oppressing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a black woman might face discrimination from a business that is not only distinct due to her, uh, due to her race, because the business does not discriminate against black men, nor distinctly due to her gender, because the business does not discriminate against women, but due to the combination
1: mm-hmm. of those two factors. Right.
0: So they might still hire a woman. They might still hire black men. Mm-hmm. But it's the fact that she's a black woman, right, that they would be against that, and so. Yeah, I mean, it comes off as saying that, yeah, we, we have these intersecting identities, mm-hmm. um, both, I mean, in, in these cases, you know, both social and political, mm-hmm. um, some that we don't have a whole lot of choice in being right. labeled with, or we find ourselves, I mean, especially when we talk about class, is a, a good way to kind of conceptualize that, because mm-hmm. class is something that does transcend a lot of identities not all of them yes <laughs> you know with what six people owning more wealth than 50 percent oh 60 percent of the world yes um yeah class is a pretty strong intersecting mm-hmm. force that that you can understand how something like poverty can affect people
1: right um,
0: but in other cases that even with those aspects of poverty some people might find
1: There's some discrepancy in the experiences of poverty, but yes, and that's kind of the thing before I, you know, be a naysayer like I usually am on this (laughs) podcast. Um, I do definitely appreciate the contributions of intersectionality. I think it's very important to consider where different identity groups meet and what kind of contextual and positioning someone might be at. Um, I think it's definitely very valuable, definitely a positive... uh, innovation from our humanities friends um but they are mad as hell that psychology is not picking it up
0: (laughs) and again i mean this kind of gets back to what we were talking about early on so what is psychology and what is psychology's main focus
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: i mean i guess the problem with that is is that well it depends on what kind of psychologist you ask right so if they come to a bunch of social psychologists like us and they're saying you know we have to test some of these intersectioning forces mm-hmm. to better understand how something like poverty or how someone's sexuality and their racial or ethnic background influences this psychological process. And we would say, Oh yeah, definitely. That sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Right. Uh, we should definitely get involved in this, but you go to a neuroscientist and they're going to say, well, everyone's got the same amygdala. Right. Now there might be, you know, differences. And let's say the neural, density of the prefrontal cortex dependent on experience um you're just like internally screaming right now aren't you
1: i mean i could i could definitely make a case that you could look at the intersection of like class within neuroscience
0: (laughs) yeah and i mean there are ways that you can look at how people differ so like for example with that and you find that let's say adolescents who engage in more Uh, resistance to peer pressure Mm -hmm. there's research to suggest that the they have a a, a, a more thickened connections in the prefrontal cortex basically there's just more neural activity um, Mm -hmm. because that's the part of your brain that helps you decide on what to do and to plan out actions and to think maybe that's a bad idea Mm -hmm. and so if you're making decisions for yourself and so, yeah, maybe there's something there. Maybe if you don't have the option to say no to your boss.
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, I would definitely say that you'd probably see differences between children who are too poor that they drink lead water in Flint, Michigan, versus other children. Yeah. Well, um,
0: language is a big one. The amount, yeah. of And it's not the way you learn language. It's the amount of language that you hear in your home. Mm-hmm. And so income plays a role in that. Yep. <laughs> Whether or not you're, you know. Getting a higher education, you're you're exposed to more advanced language, and therefore your kids are exposed to more advanced language, mm-hmm. which probably means that they're going to go into a classroom with better reading skills, right? Um, and so that there are these intersections that can happen, but that's probably not, you know, if, if you I mean go if, to a
1: group of neuroscientists, yeah. that's probably not what
0: they're going to be down for.
1: They're, they're they're busy like doing other things, yeah um <clears throat> but if you go to like say a cultural psychologist they're probably already practicing this um that's probably already been adopted um but a lot of the pushback it seems is very much um a from the more quote-unquote natural sciencey side but also i kind of felt like there was a general i'm not gonna say misread on the part of the critics who want more intersectionality But kind of the idea that, like, what we just talked about, the through line of psychology is make it generalizable, make it universal, make it quantitative, make it parsimonious, let's focus on basic processes and then we can use those findings later to do whatever we want to with them, runs antithetical to intersectionality, which is messy and untestable and um, complex and relies on qualitative research. And so I kind of was left with the question of, A, you do know what we're criticizing here, right? Like, and B, how are we supposed to integrate an opposite, like opposites into each other? Yeah. So, you know, I can see the logical jump for like when we say like neuroscience, like pushing psychology towards the natural sciences with neuroscience. That seems like a natural shift because we were already building that way to begin with. Um, We're not as flexibly positioned with intersectionality from the humanity humanity side, I don't feel.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of for the same reason that when, let's say, we try to do something that's a little more humanities-based, so we Mm -hmm. want to do some qualitative research, or we want to submit something to... A media studies journal mm-hmm. or a communications journal, because we're doing like psychology, of fan research, and there's a lot of there's
1: a lot of overlap. Fra- yeah,
0: a lot of overlap. A lot of cross disciplinary, at least on our side, a lot of cross disciplinary work with that. It's it's kind of the same thing that we hear from them, is that they look at it and they're like, man, this is really interesting. But you kind of have to simplify some of these stats that you're proposing because, like, the average person reading this journal mm, doesn't get it. Right. Or they're completely opposed to everything that we're doing because we're not using small sample qualitative analysis. Right. And it's the reverse of that. hmm If someone doing that research, doing that that single sample, small sample, or even large sample qualitative analysis to an extent, and not quantifying it in some way, and not running some structural model, you are not going to get published in I mean, even if I'm doing fan research and doing high scale structural equation modeling, I'm not going to get published in a top tier journal because they're going to look at that and go, This is a specific fan group. This isn't generalizable. Right. How does this apply to people as a whole and we do frame it and we we do work to try Mm -hmm. that and there are people who do sport fan research and and a lot of this that really try to like walk that line but it is an uphill battle right and they've been doing it since the 80s Mm -hmm. and they're still fighting it 40 years later we're still having the same conversations with these other journals and with our own journals Mm -hmm. about the nature of our research
1: Right, and even if we wanted to do more intersectional work, the uh, Settles article cuts us off at the chase because they point out that we're just going to run a two-by-two two ANOVA, and that's not intersectional either, yeah. so it's not like we can win on either side of this debate. Yeah, that that, that
0: we need to find, I mean, if we're going to make this work, it, it isn't about changing, let's say, psychology as a whole, because we need at least 50 years 100 yeah. years <laughs> yeah we need <laughs> at some time least. we need some time to kind
1: of slowly move this in um or we need a revolution but i don't think that intersectionality is equipped with a revolutionary material like cognitive sciences they don't have a technological advancement on their side
0: yeah yeah they don't have the cell mm-hmm. of um
1: capital yeah the the capital, capital. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did somebody say capital? <laughs> but, like, if we take those, so, like, there there are um, most most methods textbooks would kind of lead you with there the seven um, things that scientific explanations are. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we wanted to, let's say, try to make this work in, in the broader psychological sense and maybe get more people on board. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, on one hand, it's trying to find fields that are going to be more open to it. So you right. to social psychology, you're probably going to find plenty of people who are interested in mm-hmm. trying to understand. The downside being is that it kind of depends on how specific you want to get,
1: right? I mean, because we can, we're like I said earlier, we're already shifting towards social cognition, yeah, which makes us less friendly towards intersectionality,
0: right? Because we're still looking for those big generalizable features. Mm-hmm. Now we can try to break that down, and maybe do you know, like a two by two by three by three by two. Oh. It gets it gets a lot because you you need to break out all these little multifaceted between and within group differences.
1: And then you break parsimony.
0: Right. Because it doesn't explain with the fewest number of assumptions. And that is one of the seven yep. defining tenets of what scientific explanations are and what psychology has been trying to argue it is mm-hmm. since Freud. Yep. Um, it's empirical. It's based on objective and systematic observation. Which, that's something we can do. Yeah, uh, we can. We can definitely keep everything empirical. Uh, we can keep it rational. It follows rules of logic and is consistent with known facts. We mm-hmm. do understand that the combination of groups and identities can change greatly. How two people with just one little difference in their mm-hmm. identity—I mean, go look at Freakonomics. Just the, your name. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of research that just shows your name—you know—changes your likelihood to get a job. Right. Exactly. If you're John and not Juan, you're going to get a callback more. Mm-hmm. Same application. If you're John instead of Jane, you're going to get that callback more. And it's it's that stuff that we can we can back up with previous research. We can, mm-hmm. we can show that these 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 intersections exist or these differences exist, and then we can kind of postulate and rationally move to the next step and say, all right, if if the difference between A and B exists and the difference between C and D exists, then A and C are going to be a little different. Right. Uh, It's testable. And, I mean, to an extent, we can test this. Mm -hmm. It just depends on how we're going about it. And, again, if you're saying we can't do it with some modeling or a 2 by 2
1: ANOVA, well. Yeah, if that doesn't make the cut. So, which I think is probably, I mean, this is, you know, obviously my bias from social psych, but that seems like a fair, like, compromise. Yeah. Because, obviously, psychology is in the position where I can't keep my left hand out of natural sciences. So it's not like I can jump too terribly much and still be doing psychology.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, we can try to try to find a middle ground with that, too, to, to, to keep it more testable. But it, it then becomes a numbers game. Mm-hmm. It's something, you know, our advisor always hammered into our head. when we'd be like, hey, we've got this great idea. All right, where are you getting your participants from? Right. And if you can't get those participants... Or if all you're able to get is let's say twenty, thirty participants, mm-hmm. running anything more advanced than a really basic analysis is gonna break the central limit theorem.
1: Yup. We need at least thirty. Like per group. Per group. And if we're doing two by two by three by seven five five, we might as well make a very parsimonious correlation study at that point. <laughs> now, <laughs> I think we could maybe find ways around this. Yeah. And say
0: maybe we look to more archival data. Yes. No, I'm, I, I like that idea. Let's take stuff that things like the Pew Research Center are pulling. They're pulling just thousands upon thousands of participants worth of data. They're pulling all sorts of factors about mm-hmm. the demographics. And then they're asking them a bunch of questions. And you can see how perceptions change. Mm-hmm. You can maybe work with groups like this. Um, it's difficult because, I mean, those groups also need an incentive to collect the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it could be really interesting there's a lot of really neat stuff that groups like the Pew Research Center are doing they're collecting all sorts of really interesting demographic data how you know other psychological factors tie into it they're not they're not doing any really hard analysis mm-hmm. but you are able to see some of those differences play out some longitudinal differences and some of the intergroup differences
1: the generational differences all of this stuff and it's a great way to get those numbers oh yeah and that's kind of leads me to my idea that perhaps intersectionality because it's a high theory from the humanities and liberal arts you know because we don't really deal with any high theories besides like evolution and psychology yeah you know like there's not i mean obviously i'm gonna get a call out or i'm gonna (laughs) join them in a minute uh, but there is no like marx or like uh marxist psychology specifically
0: yeah, and I mean it would be kind of an interesting balance because the evolutionary high theory side is definitely in the natural sciences field, mm-hmm. but we're not really pulling anything
1: right from so, the other like social sciences. Right, so like that's kind of also the thing is we're kind of phobic towards like high theory yeah. to begin with. Um, but I do like the idea of perhaps maybe a way to integrate this is you know one of the things is that like study a single study is not the end all be all. Like your right. single study that you run and publish is not going to change the world. You know, like if you if I was in like sociology or literature or some other humanities course, like and I was writing a paper, that paper would be cited, yep. that paper would be standalone, mm-hmm. nobody else needs to support this paper because I've already gathered all the support that's available, and it becomes a manifesto. But our studies right. aren't that. No. And so what I think where intersectionality can make a really good headway is within the review and meta-analyses literature
0: yeah and i mean even honestly if we continue where we're going with most where you need like five six studies just to get a paper published Mm -hmm.
1: study one through six so you know if you can get like 100 studies on a topic and break down demographic data break down you know the experiences maybe compare maybe do some really cool mixed method meta-analyses where you take like one half is like all the qual yeah on the topic and one half is all the quant and then you kind of get those two like 50 years of research to speak to each other in one paper
0: yeah and i mean even modern research there's so much data we collect Mm -hmm. and even if we're not using it most researchers are still collecting demographic data Mm -hmm. and so you know this kind of again gets us back to that point of again there's some uphill battling
1: But if you can get other fields on board to share data. Mm -hmm. Which is another move that's being made right now. I think every time I submit an article for publication, it asks me if I want to share my data. Yeah, they're asking for data. You also have things like pre-publication processes
0: Mm -hmm. that require you to put your data up. So even if it doesn't work, you end up still getting published. But that data is now out there for other people to use. Right. And so we can kind of combine A lot of this data and get bigger ideas even if you're just looking Mm -hmm. at demographics right and like one or two really basic questions that all these data sets share that can be really powerful if you've got
1: a hundred data sets Mm -hmm. but this kind of brings me back to my like i don't know intersectionality like i said with the computers and cog What's the economic incentive to share your data for that kind of work if we're living under publish or perish?
0: Yeah, and that's the biggest thing right now is is that it's not you you're not going to get enough people on board because they're worried about getting scooped. Yep. They, they need those pubs themselves, yep. if you throw out that idea that you need a hundred you know a hundred studies to look at this, they're going to go, "Oh, oh, do you now?" and they're going to start calling their colleagues mm-hmm. they're going to they're going to beat you to the bunch, yep. they're not going to frame it. In intersectionality they're going to frame it into whatever they're doing research on yes and that ultimately hurts that argument mm-hmm. and, and you know if we're trying to make this work if we're trying to find a way for kind of intersectionality to fit you know we're i mean we're three for three right now mm-hmm. on the scientific explanations
1: right well we haven't quite hit the third uh, intersectionality park... bit yet oh. so theory and practice should be channeled towards social justice goals and if we don't meet that third mark we're not doing intersectionality okay so i feel like just in general social psych has probably been the best at this one yep but particularly with the clark research for uh desegregation and the dolls yeah um but he and his wife obviously ran up against the very traditional psychology which is uh we don't deal with the political we we deal in the science.
0: Yeah, and then that gets us to another break. I mean, we'll, we'll get to these other four, but this other big break in what type of research we do is that, you know, research is generally defined as either basic or applied. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it doesn't basic doesn't sound great. The reality is, is that you need the basic research to yeah. do the applied. Right. And then the applied research gets the attention That allows more people to do basic research. Right. So they're kind of a feedback loop on each other. And if you say like, well, we can't do applied or we we can only do applied, that ultimately gets us into trouble because there are a lot of psychologists who. It's not that they're not interested in Mm -hmm. what is the application here. It's that they don't even know what the question is Mm -hmm. or that maybe we have the question, but we don't know the pieces to the puzzle hmm and if we jumped too quickly to apply um but in some cases that you know that basic research helps to give the applied researcher or to give the the, the person fighting for social justice a little more ammo right uh, to to fight with mm-hmm. to 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 come to the table and say like no, no 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 this is the data this is what the data says about people this is what the data says that these people you know it's happening to person a to person b to everyone in between and that can be done relatively simply mm-hmm. um,
1: but you also run into the issue where we talk about constructing our experiments or our studies with researcher bias and if you're going in with a political an explicit political agenda you're going to bias that study there's no way around it and so Obviously, that's you know, if you're just a basic researcher who's just doing the science, man, you're still politically biasing your research. Yeah. Um, and there there are
0: ways that like, we can better check ourselves, but it makes it a lot easier for those people who are against those social justice pushes. Yes. To look at you and go, it's just because you're a political person. That's why, if you stayed unbiased like me, despite
1: the fact that I'm really a political person too, right? But they'll they'll use it against them right and so that's kind of another of the push and pull because that's something that you know we're testing in a study right now how many hypotheses do we have in that study like five too many too many i don't know which one
0: we're talking about but too many
1: yeah too many because i think we're doing that consciously because we all kind of have political stakes in that study yeah so you know we have to have multiple things running at the same time for multiple explanations that don't fit what our preconception of what it is because if you go into psychology with your humanities lens on the humanities have already made the argument and the assumption so now you're just collecting data to support the argument that already exists without the data and then that kind of gets us to some of our other
0: points is that 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 hurts a little bit of the parsimony Mm -hmm. because sometimes we're not finding the simplest explanation and the reality is that some of these things aren't simple
1: nope
0: i mean when you look at aspects of the kind of social political intersection of, of race class gender sexuality these things are complex mm-hmm. but the goal is to try to make them or at least to try to make the things that we're studying mm-hmm. as simple mm-hmm. as possible right and maybe the answer is we, we just can't with some combinations of factors and some things because there are just too many too many other pieces of the puzzle going right on. Um, but it it gets really difficult when you start adding more and more variables in to get picked up by that higher tier journal, to get picked up by kind of the mainstream to make that Mm -hmm. unified theory. Mm -hmm. You you need that high theory to kind of push your point. It has to kind of be parsimonious because if it's not parsimonious, you're going to have people who are interested in it. You have people who are going to want to use it for research. But it's not going to have the same effect as like evolutionary psychology, right? Uh, you're not going to see like an intersectional psychology grow out of it in the same way,
1: mm-hmm. and, and be picked
0: up by other fields of psychology and used by you know the vast. You, know, you have you have evolutionary psychologists in almost every field now, right? You're not going to see necessarily the same thing because
1: because you're just going to have people arguing for parsimony. And that's gonna. And that's also part of the problem with intersectionality is that it's a postmodern theory, whereas evolution and Marxism are modernist theories. Yeah. You know, Marx is workers against the bourgeoisie. Evolution is the creature versus the environment. Yeah. So it's very easy to work with. It uses a lens, whereas intersectionality is like nothing means nothing, everything means everything, and everything's interconnected. Now do science about it. Yeah. And it's, you know, obviously amiable, like, and obviously, and we'll talk more about applied how I think it really shines in applied work. I do want to give one, like you said at the beginning of this, that uh, it's the quote unquote real racism. I understand a little bit of the suspicion towards intersectional researchers, because the one thing that struck me as I was reading these journal articles was they talk about getting a lot of pushback and not getting published as they are published in like you know big publication conglomerates and i don't know the value of arguing for intersectionality to be in a top 10 journal in the field because that seems like a very privileged argument to make if we're making the argument for intersectionality for like the people like Poor people who are going to counselors, all on board. I don't particularly care about the argument that intersectionality needs to gain the prestige and collect the monies, and that's our end goal. So I kind of get a little bit of the suspicion in that regard. It's hard to take that argument seriously coming from a research journal. Um, But also, intersectionality is easy to, because it's so fast and loose, and this is something that all these authors talked about, is that it's very easily picked up and misappropriated, and this is something that the scholar Sarah Ahmed brings up all the time, is that a university can claim to be diverse and inclusive, but yeah. that's just a sign on the door. Right. And so, you can be intersectional, but you don't necessarily have the political works to prove it in that way. So I understand that even within the intersectional intersectionality camp, they're dealing with the commodification of their theory. And then from the outside looking in, you see a lot of that commodification of just like upper middle class researchers who are at like the university of Michigan. And you're sitting there at like a community college going, how do I put intersectionality into my like low income class? Right. And you're like reading about, you know, people complaining at University of Michigan who are going to be making more money than you will ever make at your community college. Yeah. So I understand that it's a little tone deaf to the general audience. And because it's not parsimonious, it's very easily picked up and appropriated for cultural capital, I feel.
0: And this this kind of gets us to the other three points of what scientific explanations are, because I think one of these could be an argument to get it into a broader mm-hmm. audience is that that they're rigorously evaluated, mm-hmm. and so that means that people are going to pick them apart. It's going to be tough, especially mm-hmm. if you're proposing something that is relatively new to the field. Right. You know, I mean, something like intersectionality in the grand scheme of in grand scheme of psychology is relatively new. So. The the other two, I think, are where we kind of, it really depends on the researcher. Mm-hmm. We have general that has broad explanatory power that kind of gets us in the same kind of pit as parsimony, mm-hmm. is that it's it's really difficult in some of these cases to um, apply this broadly. Now, I think we can apply that the concept of intersectionality as it's defined does apply to everyone. Mm-hmm. It is, a, it is a social concept or a way to understand an intersection of social processes. And I think if you went that route, if I were going to maybe do research on this, I would predominantly focus my research on showing that it is a thing. Mm-hmm. Basically showing, take a bunch of individuals, show how you can see these kind of intersections based on certain social situations that they find themselves in or how certain biases or certain, we're going to take the social cognitive approach. These, mm-hmm. You know, these these social cognitive factors might manifest differently based on previous experience. That would offer some broad explanatory power. It would it would be setting up this idea that yes, there are these concepts, these biases, and these heuristics that exist, but the intensity or the severity of how they're used depends on these intersectioning you know mm-hmm. intersectioning factors. Maybe I can do something like that. Maybe, but that's typically not. How some of these, you know, some of the researchers trying to kind of argue how it should be used in psychology Mm -hmm. are coming across. And again, we're getting into that. Are we a natural science? Are we a social science? Are we, you know, biology? Are we sociology? Um, And and then the other is tentative. Mm -hmm. It has to entertain the possibility that the explanation is false. Right. Or faulty. And that gets really difficult when we're talking about concepts that have these kind of social political lenses Yeah. Um, or tie into some sort of, again, like philosophical undertones. That's the huge, or it's one of the differences between, you know, why we kind of move away from kind of a pure philosophical perspective is that we're, we're not just kind of basing stuff off a of logic and saying like, this is it, this mm-hmm. is what's going on we're testing it more we're trying to to find outcomes that again are more parsimonious more tentative uh, are more general Mm -hmm. and we always have to go into every study going like well this might be complete bs
1: right and how do we like what what kind of evidence would we need to show that intersectionality is not what's happening
0: and and maybe that's what we go into some of our studies thinking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, we can
0: probably go into a study saying like, hey, there's this broad, general psychological factor that everyone experiences. And the alternative is, is that it's not as general as we think it is. Mm-hmm. That those, you know, those intersectioning factors play a role in how it manifests. Right. And that you can kind of say, all right, you know, that's kind of my, that's kind of my null hypothesis that, that. Or in this case, there are, you know, there are differences. Mm-hmm. The general the general factor is my null hypothesis that there are no differences.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you
0: show that there are differences. But, right. you know, what happens, the problem with <laughs> because, like, we, we want to see this maybe work. We want to see the ways in which people's identities, and we're identity social psychologists, social identity right. theorists. And so we want to see how identity plays a role in this. But what happens when we come across that that psychological construct that doesn't have a whole lot of difference between groups and people and
1: Right. Or what happens when we start priming our subjects with different parts of their intersecting identities, and then that changes. And then it, the it, outcome.
0: And, and I also see it coming into conflict with a lot of the research that's been fighting for years to show more generalization in terms of let's say like neuroscience research on male female differences which you know we're trying to argue against as social psychologists we we go right to the bat to say like all right guys look yes there are some minimal differences they're overcome by practice they might be tied to things like adaptive functions in our pasts you know you don't have to socialize a lot if you're out on the hunt but anti-coordination is really good but hey it turns out if you play like a summer a softball your hand-eye coordination is better than the average male. <laughs> right. And so like but what kind of like comes into play with that because then you start kind of getting into this idea that like but maybe maybe we are all different.
1: And that's when you kind of get into what some of these articles argued for which was very much demographics as destiny. And that's where I got a little uncomfortable because like yes fair we need more diverse people within yeah. psychology oh, absolutely definitely. i mean honestly right now we need more men um it, it has shifted uh but then i got to the point where i was like wait is just like matching the u.s population percentages to the percentages in psychology the goal then but like even the people within those percentages are not going to be the people that you think they are either like if you like take your theory seriously like you're going to get like what was it in the last election had the highest number of like minority voters for a republican since like when yeah it's not like you're you know are you going to go vet every single one of these people like i think it's a little essentializing utopianism sometimes and and it could be one of those things that gets co-opted very easily. But also, I wonder yeah. if it gets co-opted or if it's just a matter of being within like our current like American culture milieu. Like We talked about eugenics like yeah. running deep. It does not surprise me that every field, including intersectionality, is obsessed with demographics. Yeah. Because that's all of our roots. So can we even escape? Can intersectionality, being a product within the system that's trying to fix, even fix it? because it's already playing into some of the tropes of eugenics
0: (laughs) i mean i I don't think i can answer that question
1: and i mean (laughs) i don't and it's not like a personal attack on intersectionality researchers i think they're doing beautiful work i'm not you know yeah i think every single researcher in academia um it has the same problem yeah um how
0: how do you make the research that you're doing and the interest that you have especially when it's important mm -hmm. like from an applied sense how do you make it work? How do you make it get I mean, how do you disseminate that information? Mm-hmm. How do you get it into those top tier journals? Because I mean honestly, that's in part what matters. I'm, um I mean on the other depending. side now, I mean we are hopefully getting to a point where like just the wide accessibility of Uh, that information if i if i do a google scholar search for intersectionality it doesn't really matter what journal it's in
1: i guarantee you more people are going to listen to this podcast episode than have read some of my articles i mean i know yeah no actually not
0: because i've made my students read at least one of my articles (laughs) so more people have read that article
1: um but yeah that that so it's kind of like you know i don't know i i feel very conflicted with intersectionality as a whole i love the implication i love the practice um but also when i spoke about sarah ahmed earlier um a part of a reading group i was involved in earlier this semester um there was a scholar and i cannot remember her name we can probably link this conversation but it was about diversity and universities and she was you know kind of talking about how she doesn't even know if we can get past the university research structure out of colonialism mm. and like that's like her soul like scholarly focuses on colonialism and she's from the uk so she's a muslim woman from the uk so she's acutely aware yeah of colonialism and she was like you know like you could change all the faces from white to black or asian or indian the
0: process is still the same. But it's the entire
1: it's, structure and logic of the system mm-hmm. is still the same.
0: You, you go to a good English department and one of the, the, the papers that they, they harp on with a lot of this is called uh, The Master's Tools. Yeah. Uh, you cannot build a house with Master's Tools. You cannot build the same structure with tools that currently exist. In order to fix some of the problems that we have, we need a completely different structure. Mm-hmm. The problem being is that the people who would change that have to exist within the currently existing structure.
1: And so they're economically incentivized to maintain it. And so that's why don't sell me your intersectionality is revolutionary as I read it in a sage journal. Yeah.
0: So I I guess if it
1: was, it wouldn't be there. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's maybe go back to, to, I guess, sort of two positives. Yes. Two things that we can kind of end on that we can say, look, we're we're kind of crapping all over this. And, mm-hmm. and it's not out of dislike. It's out of
1: it's out of love. It's, it's genuinely out, out of love. Yeah,
0: it's out of a want to see this conversation succeed. We mm-hmm. want. I mean, we are social psychologists. We want people talking about the intersection mm-hmm. of different groups. We are identity theorists. We really want people talking about intersecting identities, right? Um, and and the nature of of social and, and political um identity structure, and so. We want to see this work. And working doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be in a top-tier journal. No. Working is probably never going to happen on a, we're going to change psychology as a whole. No. Because no. in that case, we can't do it with the master's tools.
1: Right. We have to rebuild psychology. You need to make intersectionality as profitable as the first computer. <laughs> and, so, well, and
0: so how do you do that, I guess? Um, I don't know if you can. Yes. But... You can get closer by kind of looking at one of the sort of two
1: positives, and, and this is a more, I think, tangible positive, applied research. Yeah, applied is great, especially, and this is kind of what spurred this conversation in the first place, was intersectionality within the clinical counseling office. Yes. And how you put your clinical psych into practice.
0: And that actually might start making it a bit profitable too Mm -hmm. i mean if we can get to a point that agreeing that you know things like mental health care is ultimately good for business right and the economy Mm -hmm. and actually there's a lot of research that already exists that says that you know hey if we just like helped people deal with their anxiety and their depression they'd miss less work Mm -hmm. they'd be more productive they'd make you as a business owner more money i'm just trying to frame this in the you know the
1: mindset to to get everyone on board um, but if you run too far down intersectionality, then you realize that you're just treating symptoms of larger structures in your office. Right.
0: But that as well. I mean, mm-hmm. if you can show that, hey, you know, it turns out if people in these situations, you know, maybe if we we eat, holding, let's say, this constant, but not things like income mm-hmm. or not, you know, or holding income constant and then looking at ethnic ethnic background or racial identity and then we start to see these discrepancies these differences, maybe one group really mm-hmm. high you know, why is it that women are far more likely to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder yet men are four times more likely to complete suicide, right like what's going on there mm-hmm. and we can understand that, that there's this intersection, that it's something about that mm-hmm. and figure out like all right well what is it about that is it about aspects of masculinity is it about larger social structures mm-hmm. and other things going on you can use that applied research to target things right and that would likely be highly beneficial if you're let's say a charitable
1: organization mm-hmm. or
0: if you're up you know you know, a public action group that's trying to find like strategies to, to better help and mm-hmm. kind of pinpoint, you know, maybe like if we inject a little money here and we inject a little money there. We get you to do the research to kind of figure
1: out mm-hmm. um, or what should we be talking about. Right. I don't know if I, I mean, obviously that kind of work has been done. Like yeah. that's part and parcel of the nonprofit business for a hot minute now. Right. Um, I'm thinking in terms of like you have a client in front of you, like that individual person that you're there to help. And I mean, intersectionality comes in real handy if you're like, oh, yeah. hey, like, let's talk about like your experiences going through X, mm-hmm. Y and Z. Like, turns out you've been seeing like good old white country boys, like one, two, three, four, five. And then the next one's gay. And you're like, oh, this one has a different experience that we need to account for. Right.
0: Um. Yeah, it makes me think, too. I mean, even when we talk about the field of clinical psychology, there are kind of two big things that they find tend to be some of the best um, you know what makes clinical psychology effective for mm-hmm. people and one of those two things is I mean there's probably more than two but the two that always stick out to me one is, is people have to think that it works so right. it has to you know if, if you're like this is all a bunch of you know these, these quacks mm-hmm. eh, it's probably not going to work for you um, you know in the same way that if you think a pill is going to give you a stomach ache you might get a stomach ache right um, but the other is is that we find when we use eclectic therapy it tends to work and i think it works because it's tailor-made to the individual you you throw a bunch of stuff at the wall you see what sticks and you tailor that to the person yeah because not every client is the same Mm -hmm. not every patient is the same and so in the same factor that could help you narrow that pool down Mm -hmm. and you know really you know ultimately make you a more effective clinician Mm -hmm. um You know, I I think it's, you know, it's a little more work and I can see why some people in psychology might be against it. Because you're telling them not to just treat the symptoms. Right. You're making their lives slightly more difficult.
1: Right. And, I mean, that's totally understandable to be annoyed about. (laughs) I Um, I guess. I mean, (laughs) we're living in 21st century. It's the same people who are probably upset that we now have autism spectrum disorder instead of
0: autism and asperger separately you know yeah or who go back and say why did they get rid of my psychosis,
1: psychosis. Mm-hmm. why did they add uh h to the ADD? <laughs> um all right but you know I, that's where i think i like it the best um i like it in big meta analyses reviews and i like it down here at like the individual one-on-one but i don't know exactly how to merge it with psychology proper at this point, so I guess that
0: takes us to kind of our second positive that we can end on, and and this is more of a positive that'll probably be at the end of our lifetime,
1: if we ever see psychology is dying,
0: <laughs> but it's sort of a byproduct of how psychology was born. Yes, that that we talked about at the beginning that psychology itself is a field that has grown out of other fields. Mm-hmm. They have taken fields that currently exist and have long existed in the kind of academic consciousness Mm -hmm. and now we try to study it within the proxy of human behavior or Mm -hmm. animal behavior or human consciousness or animal consciousness to some degree that we try to take biology and understand it from a psychological perspective we try to take to being questions of philosophy and try to understand them within the social cultural context. Mm-hmm. And we, and I mean, I, this will be a fight. I I don't necessarily see it disappearing in 50 years.
1: Right. I don't think it's going to be gone, gone. I think people will still be trained as psychologists. But like, just in my graduate school, I've worked in the linguistics department, the education department, the counseling department. Like, I'm already traveling multiple fields just with one degree.
0: And this is kind of a byproduct, too, of of some of the stuff that's being researched. And where some programs are going with the idea of, like, hey, if you want to be successful, you kind of have to be more than a one-trick pony. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who can pull it off. And them and their students, I think, are going to do okay. Mm -hmm. But there's going to get to a point where can you really do one more study on this that's going to still hit those top tier journals without just kind of doing the same thing? I mean, replication is important. We should mm. be replicating. No but also, money in that. There's no money in that. Right, exactly. There's no you know, there's no interest in funding something that's already been done. Yep. Um, to the point where even if you do it on your own money, they're not going to publish it. Mm-hmm because no one wants to read it because it's already been done unless
1: it's like really spicy like the milgram study right um but like even just both so like we're talking about the idea of post-disciplinary so the idea that the disciplinary bounds of psychology are eventually going to dissolve and that psychology is a thing and it's a science is going to eventually fail um because we're going to get consumed into multiple different disciplines. Um the neuroscientists
0: are going to go to medicine, the cognitive psychologists are going to I don't yeah. know I mean maybe I think
1: st- cognition will form its own discipline.
0: It'll it'll just become part of the cognitive sciences. Mm-hmm. Social psychologists are going to go to the humanities. They're going to be they're they're going to be working back where they used to originally in mm-hmm. sub disciplines of sociology, um anthropology.
1: I mean and I, I mean it could be like that or the theory of post is that all of the fields will start dissolving yeah. and so there may not be a place to go back to um and when i say post-disciplinary just for the audience's sake there's a difference between interdisciplinary multidisciplinary yeah. and then post-disciplinary so interdisciplinary is like the work that you do so like a lot of our work is interdisciplinary and mm-hmm. in that we have to pull from media studies or um different areas of psychology or sociology for example in order to do a study, multidisciplinarity is when you either are a specialist in multiple disciplines, or mm-hmm. you work with other people of multiple disciplines. And then postdisciplinarity is when there is no longer a discipline-specific thing that it, you know that you attach yourself to. You're kind of floating in a postmodernist uh, jelly. I
0: I am going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because I really thinking about it, I don't
1: see it happening. Yeah, you think we're going to hold on? Because of the university structure. I mean if that lasts. I mean if that lasts.
0: Now if that were to go away
1: I well, mean I could see if, that happening. I mean COVID didn't kill it, so
0: Right. And I mean there have been other things in the past that didn't kill it. Mhm. Um, just because there's always gonna be that fight that like and this is from talking to some people that I know in academia, the chemists, they're the only ones who teach chemistry. Mhm. And and I I I reached out to some colleagues recently asking about, you know, hey, like, what if I did some sort of applied statistics class and maybe made it a little multidisciplinary, like where it was a little less concerned about what field you were in, but we can make it work because, like, the underlying statistics were the same. And I had someone said, you know, I appreciate the sentiment, but, you know, I think that math professors should teach statistics and chemistry professors should teach chem labs and, like, psychology professors should teach psychological research methods and then i went um i respectfully disagree Uh, i have more hours teaching statistics and applied statistics and taking applied statistics classes than probably your average math professor does
1: oh because it's a different it's a very different kind of math yeah that's i mean really it's not even math but no it's it's more it's more about the (laughs) applied side what to use when it's lying with numbers <laughs> 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 kidding kidding <Yeah. laughs> but but yeah i was like you know it doesn't really matter
0: if you're a sociology student or a psychology student
1: a t test is
0: a t test right or a biology student yeah a t test is a t test i i got complimented by someone in the biology department for using you know a mediation analysis and they were like, yeah, we use that too. And I'm like, of course you do. Because er- everyone uses it in science. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's a common analysis. Or it's becoming more common because like a T-test alone doesn't cut it anymore. But, but yeah, I mean, I could see us being like specialized. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the reason why you have programs. Can, you know, in, in some ways, why it's easy for some programs to consolidate. Because there are overlaps in some of the courses that we teach. I can teach a statistics course to non-psych students. Mm-hmm. I can teach a social psych course to sociology students. There's a lot of overlap in what they learn.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've, with the exception of maybe, ooh, actually, you know what? I don't think I've ever taught a class that wasn't double listed.
0: Yeah, you teach some some research methods class. The last university I worked at, research methods was about half nursing Mm-hmm. or communication speech disorders, and half psychology. Yeah. And let me tell you, every year, I get kind of upset when my psych students wouldn't be as good <laughs> as those uh, communication speech disorders nursing students. Oh, there's,
1: you can't be a nursing student. The nursing students are, like, the most badass students on the campus. It's because it's a rough program. And they are hard as nails, and they've earned it. It's tough to get in, it's tough to
0: stay in, and if you can make it through, like, yeah, you're a champ. Mm -hmm. so but but we get to that point of i I think it's going to be difficult without changing it at the act the the lowest level and just like when we talk about you know sharing data that's why i'm a little pessimistic about it
1: because we are incentivized to work within the system right i think the only thing that might kill the discipline is that it's more profitable to go into industry if you are post-disciplinary yes yeah so if that pull gets stronger we shall see and i mean we're getting to a point where i mean we hit
0: that point it's tough to find a job
1: Mm -hmm. in
0: academia because you're in it till you die yep well we ended on a dark dark note um let's make it worse with the bias of the week yay so i chose my side bias it's um you know, if we're talking about psychologists not wanting to adopt new things or change the way that they do things, people in the side fields not wanting to do the same, you know sociologists mm-hmm. don't want us publishing in their journals, communications media studies, people don't want us publishing in their journals, psychologists don't want them publishing in our journals, so my side bias comes into play perkins nineteen eighty nine a tendency to be overly swayed by a prior opinion on a topic, failing to give enough weight to evidence or arguments to the contrary.
1: No, oh, man. It's very relevant. Yes, no. I have... If you're in psychology since behaviorism, there is no way you're putting up with intersectionality nonsense. Yeah,
0: and I mean, we're still... You know, the, the people running the departments and running the shows, for the most case, there are exceptions. Mm-hmm. But our you know people who graduated 40 years ago or longer mm-hmm. uh, they're they're not new blood and you need you need, for lack of a better word you kind of do need a revolution at the the you know this is this is something that needs to happen at kind of a graduate student level to to talk about things like that those sort of post disciplinary approaches the mm-hmm. multidisciplinary approaches to basically say like hey yes you're a clinical student don't ignore social, don't ignore cognitive, don't ignore anthropology, don't ignore communications, don't ignore biology. Mm-hmm. Like you need to be kind of a little good at everything, but ultimately it makes you better. Yes. Um, it it means that, that you're coming to that table with more information mm-hmm. and maybe less likely to fall prey to my side bias because you yes. have a broader perspective. So we'll end on a, another good note. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so the, if, we, if we want people to take anything from this, I, I think it's just that, you know, we're not we're not anti. We're definitely not anti. No. Intersectionality. We're definitely pro-intersectionality Absolutely. on this podcast. But we see the struggle mm-hmm. it's going to have. And for psychological researchers who want, and I mean, look, I'll, I can end with, so you're a minority in the field. And you want to change the majority. How do you do that? You do it in two ways. This is how minority influence works on a social level. You're consistent. So if you're going to say that there is this broader theory of intersectionality. You need to be consistent in what it is. Consistent in how you define it. Consistent in its approach. And you need to hit people on the informational norms. Not. Or informational influence. Not the normative influence. Mm -hmm. Not what we always do. But in saying like, hey, yeah, there's a thing you don't understand. I might have an answer for that, mm-hmm. and you kind of slip it in, Yep. Like, or hey, you're trying to think of a way to apply that to the real world. Maybe you look at how these demographic groups differ. You know, mm-hmm. um, You know, there are ways to 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 put it into practice. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little different than the way it's being done by some but not, not by everyone in the field. Mm-hmm.
1: And I also kind of wonder how much of this conflict is just manufactured for publications, too. Just a little bit. I mean, there are going to be people
0: who are going to make opinion pieces and response publications who are going to be doing it to get their, their names out there, too, just for the click and the shock.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if you're an intersectional psychologist trying to make it, like, we're all struggling, dude. <laughs> and... I don't know if people are specifically out to get you for your intersectionality, or if it's just because you're new.
0: <laughs> what you do is is you get published in a number of interdisciplinary journals. You try to find some even some low tier stuff. No, build mm-hmm. those publications up. You know, get yourself a nice. And a lot of these people probably have much better Vitas than we do. Oh yeah, um, but we have
1: we are not people to be asking advice for about this. Um. <laughs>
0: play the system get on yeah. the
1: board you know get, get get a good multidisciplinary team together research a hot topic
0: yeah i mean it's it's possible but
1: yeah but also academia is a struggle and if you don't make it into that you know r1 institution level researcher position you're not going to get published and you're not going to get funding and you share a boat with the rest of us so welcome to the party
0: <laughs> and it, it's just difficult the na- The nature of psychology of at least what we want to say the nature of what where psychology is from and, and where psychology is and the systems in which it plays are very much the master's tools yes and
1: we either have to change the system or find new tools yep or um, just wait for it to dissolve into a postmodern jelly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but i'm gonna be able to get tenure before then um, fingers crossed yeah, fingers crossed so yeah i guess with that we'll we'll try to you know end on you know, there. there's hope but it's it's again it's the trouble with those systems mm-hmm. and, and maybe making it more marketable
1: mm-hmm. which is also very difficult mm-hmm. especially when the conflict is also marketable
0: yes oh the conflict is i think far more marketable right now than than intersectionality itself that's mm-hmm. because the loudest voices against it are you know, like sinners. So, hmm, hmm,
1: <laughs> hmm. <sighs> all right. Well, all right. We, we ended back on a bad note. So yeah. we'll we'll have a more hopeful episode for y'all next week. Maybe. I think we do, don't we? I don't are we? Know. Are we doing our group chat next week? Yes, I believe so. Okay, so, okay it'll yeah. be fun. slightly more hopeful. Yes, we'll do some hopeful applied research. All right. So I guess with that, goodbye. Goodbye.